You're listening to LCC Alumni Stories, a show dedicated to highlighting the amazing alumni of Lansing Community College. I'm Steve Robinson, president of LCC, and on each episode I have the awesome privilege of getting to know one of our many inspiring alums and hearing about their experiences at and since leaving LCC. The LCC alumni community is expansive and far-reaching. They're an incredibly diverse group of people, representative of all walks of life, working in hundreds of industries across the country. LCC Alumni Stories shines a bright light on alumni who make positive contributions to their communities and showcases those who've overcome obstacles and barriers to achieve academic and personal success. These are their dynamic stories. My guest today is Paul Molnar, who studied theater at LCC from 1991 to 1993 before transferring to the University of Michigan. He's currently the Director of Theater Performance and Associate Professor of Theater at Independence Community College. Welcome to the show, Paul. I'm glad to have you here. Thank you. I'm really, I'm really thrilled to be here. I'm thrilled that you're here. And you know, before we talk about your alumni journey and, and, your, and your long journey back here to mm-hmm. what you're doing now... You're doing something really exciting. You are artist-in-residence with our theater department right now. Tell me a little bit about that. What are you doing here with our theater students and faculty? Yeah, so I was had a, some conversation with Kevin, who's the director of uh, the production of Romeo and Juliet. Right, right. And I was asked if I would be willing to come and participate, um, not only in the production, but doing some workshops in the community and, and uh, working with, with the students here. And I was so excited to be able to have this opportunity to come back uh, to a place that, that launched my entire uh, future. I can't wait to talk about <laughs> how your future was launched here. But I, I, I want to linger over this key fact right here. The, our students and our theater program in this production of Rom- Romeo and Juliet are really benefiting from a long career in professional theater. Not only are you a professor of theater, you've been in a lot of productions and you've got a ton of experience. Tell me a little bit about your background in the theater. Sure. So after graduating uh, from University of Michigan, mm-hmm. I moved to New York City. Right. And I lived and worked there for 20 plus years. Wow. Uh, and that career took me not only various places in New York, but regionally, um, you know, different companies that I worked with, Shakespeare companies and uh, straight plays and musicals and just went all over. So I've had a really wonderful uh uh, career in in New York, and the thing that's the most exciting, I think, coming back here mm-hmm. and being able to work with these students is to is to be able to see where I was at that point, and and then and and being the person in the room that has, you know, twenty years gone by, and and sort of because I believe that that theater is an apprenticeship. Right. I really, I really think that 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 you learn from the people who have gone before. Uh-huh. That's certainly the way that I learned as a as an actor. Uh-huh. And so it's it's a real privilege to be able to to work alongside these students um, and help them create uh, uh, this work. Well, what an incredible opportunity for our theater students because I was going to say. I imagine if I was a theater student, but I don't have to because I started college as a theater student. If an artist in residence acting and plays in New York City came and was in a show with Mm -hmm. me, I I just can't imagine the amount of experience you're going to impart to our students during this production of Romeo and Juliet. Yeah, you know, I I have found it to be refreshing, the, the, the energy that the young mind brings out onto the to the rehearsal floor and and just the energy that they're cre- it's infectious you know as someone who's who's had a few years you know um, to see that kind of youthful uh, invigoration and and sort of fearlessness mm-hmm. of approaching the text is really refreshing for me well and I, I was really interested in you referring to theater as an apprenticeship so so this is a great example of learning by doing mm-hmm. right and our students who maybe many of them this will be probably their first Shakespeare production mm-hmm. it's certainly not yours and so being a fellow actor in a company with that kind of diversity of experience just has to be an incredible learning environment it is. And, and, you know, I think one of the things that, that comes to life in the rehearsal process, one thing that I didn't know when I was younger was, um, you know, quite how to be able to say, you know what, I don't know what I'm saying. I don't know how to solve this moment. And encouraging the students to be able to say, you know what, I don't know. Let's look it up. Mm-hmm. 
let's do some research. Let's talk about what the moment is about instead of feeling like you have to come up with a final performance on the very first day of rehearsal. Mm -hmm. That's what I mean about it it being a process and and learning from the people who've gone before. I certainly have to still look up words. And and even though I've done, I think I've done, I I counted it. um, I've done Romeo and Juliet uh, either as an actor or as a fight director 14 times. 14 productions. 14 productions of Romeo and Juliet. So wow. I, so I have, you know, I've done the play a lot, yeah. and I still go back, and I'm like, what is that moment about? I know in this production we did this, and that production we did that, but what's the, what is it in this new environment? You know, so that's what's interesting to me and, and exciting. That's got to be really, I, I can only imagine, very helpful for students because so many of them, the, this, the Renaissance uh, uh, drama, that prose, what the the lines they read, has to be so foreign to them in many ways. Mm-hmm. But to know that even a veteran actor who's done the play fourteen times mm-hmm. still has to think about interpretation, the the meaning of words, and of course we know, you know, from Shakespeare, many of the lines in plays like Romeo and Juliet are are deliberately ambiguous, meant to be taken multiple ways, and sure. and can be performed so many different ways. Absolutely, and especially, you know. You look at where we are right now in 2022, um, you know, there's, you know, Romeo and Juliet is really sort of a play about these two rival families. Right. Yeah. Right. I mm-hmm. mean, fundamentally, you have something that has been running through the current of our society very much, you know, right now politically and all that kind of stuff. So so even if you're even if you're you're not doing it in a, either a modern dress or perhaps, you know, in period dress, the core values, the core ideas of the play are still relevant right uh to this day so that's that's really fun well the play has such staying power and uh i can't wait to see what you and the students do uh, with it now before we talk about your time here as a theater student Mm -hmm. you mentioned that in addition to uh, playing a key role in the play and working with the students you'll also be doing the choreography fight direction tell me a little bit about what goes into uh, making a convincing combat scene in a play like Romeo and Juliet. Yeah, so so the biggest thing for me, whenever I deal with stage combat or, or any kind of violence that's being told on stage, mm-hmm. uh, it is you, you got to figure out what the story is. Okay, right? What what what's the purpose of the the conflict? Interesting. And until you understand what that purpose is. Um, you, you sort of just spin your wheels a little bit and you maybe just come up with some interesting choreography that looks cool. Yeah, otherwise it's just a visual show. Uh, but what you're talking about is there's some key storytelling. What's the, what's the conflict at the core of this combat? Yeah, absolutely. And especially in Romeo and Juliet, you know, specifically the, the sword fight between Mercutio and Tybalt, two very different types of characters. Okay. And one of the things that I really try to do whenever I choreograph something is I really try to talk to the actors and say what... What is what's what's going on with your character in this moment? Mm-hmm. How do, what do you want? What do you need? Because if we can get the the choreography, the moves mm-hmm. to be to come from the character, right? It's going to empower that actor uh, to be able to act it in a more thorough way, and we're going to just tell a better story. Right, right. So thinking back to my theater days, that would be about that actor's motivation as a character, yeah, right? Yeah. And what I'm hearing you say is, that in addition to just um, being part of the story, there is a fight, mm-hmm. um, There, this is really propelling where the characters are going mm-hmm. and how they interact with each other. Yeah. You know, uh, let me ask a kind of a layperson's question about stage combat. Can it be dangerous? Are there, way, are there ways that you can uh, ensure the safety of your actors when you're choreographing these scenes? It absolutely can be dangerous, which is why it needs to be choreographed. And, you know, one of the, one of the dangers is, I think sometimes when we, you know, when actors think, oh, I'm doing a fight, they think, oh, I've really got to, you know, I know I'm not going to maybe make contact with the person, but I'm going to, I'm going to really throw my body into it. And so the challenge is to, to allow um, the actor to feel the, the freedom of movement mm-hmm. while restraining it. I, 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 I talk about it as a, as a, as a violent dance. Wow. It's a physical dialogue, but the dialogue has to be there. Right. It's not just an improvised uh, uh, throwing of blades around. Okay, And and one thing built into what I hear you saying is that it's probably not designed to be seen right up close. It's not like a movie. 
the audience is seeing this from 15, 20 feet back. Yes. And it has to read as a fight, but it doesn't have to really be a fight. Right. Absolutely. And, you know, I mean, with film, <laughs> film is in some ways is, is easier because you have the lens of the camera. Got it. Right. And you can dictate sort of where the that eyeball is going to be viewing the violence. Oh. But when you're on stage, you have a, a, a broader span of the audience. So you have to take into account where all of those people are going to be watching this, the violence. Well, and particularly with Shakespeare, where you're often in the round or at least three quarters, right? Mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, it, are, where are you performing uh, Romeo and Juliet? Where are we doing this? So it'll be in the courtyard out uh, at okay, the so center outdoor. of campus. Okay. Yeah, so yeah. it'll be, it'll be a, a nice kind of three-quarter so so not exactly a proscenium but certainly not in the round but enough where yeah there'll there'll be multiple view you can't you can't hide the fact that there isn't contact with right. the lens is what i hear you say absolutely oh i'm so so excited that our students get to work with you on this so one of the things about your career um you know you 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 did all this theater in new york you've you've performed shakespeare so many times but it sounds like that started for you right here at LCC. How did you come to LCC? It did well. You know, I came to uh, Lansing Community College because I was uh, dating someone who was going to Michigan State. Ah. And instead of having a long-term relation, I was going to North Central Michigan College up. Sure. Because I'm, I'm from Boyne City originally. Okay, yeah. So, I know Boyne City and I know Nuckmuck really oh, well. Yeah, yeah I do, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. fighting ferrets. <laughs> Although I think they've changed their name now. I, I think so. <laughs> but but yeah, it's a, a, a great school in a beautiful part of the world. Absolutely. So I, I transferred down to LCC okay. um, to be in a closer proximity with, with someone I was dating at mm -hmm, the time. Mm -hmm. And I still didn't really know what I wanted to do. Okay. I was taking some criminal justice classes, mm -hmm. uh, you know, some other sort of things. And then I took this improv class and I thought, oh, well, that'll be an easy, easy A for me. <laughs> you know, I'll just be a class clown, whatever. And, and what happened is I started to meet some of the people in the theater department, um, Penny Owen, who uh, was the was the head of theater at that time? Mm -hmm. um, I I took the class with her, and then she recommended that I take another class and another class, and it just it just clicked with me. It just felt like this is what I should be doing. Um, so it was very exciting. I, I I took as many theater classes as I could, and it was at that time that that University of Michigan was just launching their BFA program for the first time. Okay, at, in theater. At, yeah, in theater, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so I was in the second class mm -hmm. of uh, the BFA theater program at University of Michigan. So I transferred there and went on and got a scholarship and, and did really well there and then moved to New York. So. so I love stories like that because not every community college transfer uh, ends at a, a neat demarcation line of two years with an associate degree. We get really excited when our students take off and maybe uh, get to a transfer destination early. So it sounds like you know you took a bunch of classes here, but you 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 really got into a baccalaureate program, that BFA program mm -hmm. down the road in Ann Arbor, pretty quickly. Like how many how many shows did you do here at LCC? I did. I think, boy, looking back, maybe maybe three or four. Okay, great shows before going. Well, that's enough to get momentum, right? Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And it and it was really the classroom that 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 changed my life here. The training that happened, the realignment, I'll call it, mm -hmm. of my focus as a student. Mm -hmm. That's what shifted. Wow. Wow. And so, and and I've heard this from a lot of uh, community college transfer students. Tell me about your experience uh, going into that BFA program with classes under your belt from here, as compared to maybe some of your classmates who started off right there when they were freshmen. Well, the the biggest difference was I felt like the training that I got here mm -hmm. set me up uh, to succeed. Uh, in a in a in a in a better way than than I would have been able to do if I somehow miraculously had gotten into University of Michigan out of high school, like right away. Yeah. So why? It, what 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 was the difference? It I learned how to be a student here, and I think and it, for me, mm -hmm. someone who struggled a little bit in high school, uh -huh. um, I, I I was taught how to be a student. Wow. Wow. T tell me a little bit more about that. So when you, you, you learned to be a student, you were taught to be a student. What does that mean? What did I, you learn? So I learned to be on time. I learned to do 
the homework. I learned that the, the work that happened in the classroom was not the only work you had to do. All of the other stuff surrounding it mattered, you know, and that was that was something that I didn't get until I came here. That, to me, that's fascinating in the performing arts, right? Because when we think about rehearsal, when you rehearse the play, mm -hmm. that's not when your actors learn their lines, right? No. They learn their lines before yeah. because there's higher order work to be done in the production. So it sounds like being and being on time mm -hmm. in any performative <laughs> arts thing, right, is, yeah. is super, super important. It sounds fundamental but it's super, super serious. Yeah. And you can, you know, I'm sure if you asked anybody, well, what are you supposed to do to be a good student? They say, well, you got to be on time. You got to be, you can say it. Mm -hmm. But the difference is whether you actually put it into your life. Put it into practice. Yeah. 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 So um, I, I'm interested in things that you might have taken with you from LCC to that BFA program or to your acting career in New York. Were there... Were there times in productions where you thought back to things that you learned here? Tell me a little bit about what you took with you from LCC, both both to Ann Arbor uh, and to New York City. Absolutely. Um, you know, aside from what we just spoke about is being on time, but I think the work ethic. Okay. You know, there's the, you know the it is there's a lot of actors out there, especially in New York, sort of dime a dozen. Okay. And you you have to just keep doing your job and your you know, kind of keep your blinders on a little bit mm -hmm. and, and not worry about all this other stuff that's happening because everybody's path is different. Okay. You know, my path from Boyne City to to Kansas, where I am now, yeah. has been a winding road. But the thing that, that, that has always driven me was my desire to do theater and to now later in my life to, to be an educator, to pass down what I was given that changed me. So... You mentioned something that's always fascinated me, and that is the incredibly competitive environment that is New York City in the arts, mm -hmm. right? So it it's often a dream of folks in the arts to go to New York, which is, a, which is where there's such a hub of creativity, whether it's music or art or performing arts, dance and theater. Tell me a little bit about what the, those 20 years were like. You mentioned you did regional theater. You did, I think, off-Broadway. Mm -hmm, yeah. Tell me a little bit about that competitive nature. Oh, boy. Well, at the beginning, um, you know, you, you show up to all of these open calls, which if nobody has gone to an open call, what it means is you, you stand in line with 400 other people at 4 in the morning on, in Times Square, and you wait for the equity building to open so you can walk up there to get a a time slot to come back four hours later to do a two-minute monologue to hopefully be selected to be seen by the casting director. Wow. I mean, it's, it, you know, that, that's an open call situation. And it sounds incredibly cutthroat. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It, just because there are so many people. Right. Or you, you send out, you know, 50 headshots and resumes um, per week to just try to be seen by somebody. You know, the struggle before you get an agent is getting in the room. Wow. And then once you get in the room, you have to be so prepared and, and really show up ready to let them know what you can bring to the job. Um, and, and the final piece of that is if you hit every single thing right and you get in the door and you knock their socks off and they're like, wow, this person's really great, they still might not cast you. Wow. You know, because they're like, oh, you're really great, but you know what? You're a little bit too short or you're a little bit too fat or a little bit too and – no, and God, you were great. And you just have to be like, okay, well, on to the next on one. On to the next thing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that that's such a that's such an integral part of uh, our popular understanding of what uh, the arts in New York are like. It reminds me of just recently, you probably saw Tick, Tick, Boom, right? Mm -hmm. it, it, it takes place probably in the era that you were in, in New York. And just shows what a what a struggle it is for artists and particular theater people to perform their craft. And you mentioned waiting in front of the equity office. That's another thing about your background. You're an mm -hmm. equity actor. Mm -hmm. You're also, I think, a member of Screen Actors Guild, right? So this is mm -hmm. that this is these are professional uh, performing arts unions that yes. you're a part yeah. of. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I was fortunate enough to get my equity card um, in the. I have to think. I think it was. In 2000 or 2001, I okay. can't I can't quite remember. Mm -hmm. um, at the the Shakespeare Theater of New Jersey. All right. Um, 
I had my very first audition actually in New York was for uh, a Shakespeare Live, which is a touring company that toured Shakespeare around to high schools. And it was run through the Shakespeare Theater of New Jersey. And I got that job and made good connections and worked uh, in their non-equity company and was with them for a couple of years. And then they, that, that theater offered me my very first equity contract. And I say all that to say that, that a lot of what this industry is about and what the business is about are relationships. Right. You know, being the person who shows up on time, does good work, is a, is a good colleague with everyone. Because, it, you know, we work long hours, late hours, and everybody has so much on their plate. They, you know, directors and casting people, they want to bring someone in who's going to be a part of the team. Right. So, right. so proving that, um, being a valuable colleague is is really important so there's a there's a touring musician that i love who said you know it, it, you have to be able to play but in order to be a really successful bandmate you have to be a good hang you know yeah. you have to be somebody who can <laughs> yeah. like that that is you know okay to be with in the green room mm -hmm. or on the bus yeah. right i mean being a good person absolutely and you know again i'm really excited that these these are things that our theater students can't really learn in a book the process of putting on a performance mm -hmm. with you, and this will naturally come up when you're on break or eating or whatever. Mm -hmm. That's how, that's probably how you learned all of this. Yeah. Was from fellow actors who had been doing it for a long time. Right. Absolutely. All of those stories, those old stories, you know, I mean, actors love, love to tell stories. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Definitely. What's well, a storytelling craft? Yeah. So one other piece of your career that I find super fascinating. I mean, we already check all the boxes. I love theater. I love, I love um, uh, Shakespeare. I love LCC. But near and dear to my heart, you're a community college faculty member now. You yes. came back. Yeah. Uh, tell me a little bit about your studio and your teaching uh, at, in Kansas. I, I feel really blessed to be a part of Independence Community College. Um, it is, it's an incredibly uh, supportive town and community. Mm -hmm. Where is it located? It's is it in, in Independence, Independence, Kansas. Kansas. Yeah. So okay. Southeast Kansas. So like LCC, your, your college's name is the city name yeah. plus community <laughs> college. Great. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I, I feel really um, the community that I, that I live in and get to work in and be a part of is, um, has been a really great change. You know, imagine moving from New York City to uh, Independence, Kansas, which have the, has a population of, I think, around 9,000. It does. Yeah, so it, that shift, that dynamic change um, was, was dramatic. Uh, but it's been it's been so great. Well, and here's one thing, because uh, I am just a raving fan of community colleges. And what I can tell you about where you are is you are probably the cultural hub of that town. Right. If you're going to see live theater, mm -hmm. you're going to see it at Independence Community College. Right. Yep. You're going to see it there. You're going to see it in our area high schools. OK, good. The, the high schools in, in southeast Kansas. I was shocked at the at the level and the quality of work that that a lot of these um, high school directors have have put in place. Mm -hmm. It's really something special, um, and so I, I feel really honored to be able to not only uh, sort of take some of those high school students once they've graduated, if they want to come to ICC and be a part of our program, mm -hmm. but I get to go out and watch their productions and their performance and get into their classrooms also. Um, so I, I do a lot of outreach. It's you know it's recruiting, right? It's it all part is, of what but, you do. But but it's really important. Absolutely. Well, and that and that is my background. So I did all four years of high school theater. Was president of the theater troupe, and uh, it was a meaningful, transformative experience mm -hmm. for me uh, to to do productions both on the technical side and and as an actor, mo mostly as as uh, as a tech. So it sounds like this is a really rewarding uh, destination for you after this a great career. Uh, the the where you are now is as a faculty member uh, leading a theater at a community college that really adds a lot to the community where you are. It it it's really rewarding. I I feel like it's my way of giving back. That's too and, cool. And that's where I feel like it ties in here to LCC because I as I said I got I got my start here and it changed my life. And now I'm at a place giving back um, a lot of those valuable lessons that I learned along that journey. Well, we're really lucky to have you working with our students. I can't wait to see uh, Romeo and Juliet. It's one of my favorite plays. And I have had such a wonderful time visiting with you today. Yeah, it's been really fun. Thank you. Oh, no problem, Paul. Thanks a lot. 
LCC Alumni Stories is recorded and produced by Steve Robinson on LCC's downtown campus. The soundtrack, Who Told You, is licensed through DeWolf Music and was performed by Ian McCanty. Thanks for listening. Learn more about what our alumni have been up to at lccconnect.org. And if you're an LCC alum and want to share your story, send me an email at steve underscore robinson at lcc.edu. Until next time, keep learning. This is LCC Connect on WLNZ 89.7 FM. Examining the issues and topics that affect our lives from the local level to the world stage. Listen to the programs of LCC Connect anytime at lccconnect.org. LCC Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision. Lansing Community College's massage program is accepting clients for the spring semester 2022 massage clinic. The massage clinic is open to the public and provides an opportunity for the students of the massage program to gain valuable client experience. Relaxation massages and therapeutic massages are both available for a nominal fee. Visit lcc.edu and search massage for more information. The West Campus Technical Careers Division at Lansing Community College is currently hiring for faculty, student, and support positions. A hiring fair will take place Tuesday, June 21st from 5 to 7 p.m. at LCC's West Campus located on Cornerstone Drive. To find out how to register, apply, or get more details, visit lcc.edu careers. That's lcc.edu careers. LCC. Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision. From Lansing Community College, this is LCC Connect, and this is Land Stories, with me, David Seawick. Each episode explores a different topic, such as the people, business, neighborhoods, communities, buildings, and other phenomena that make up the history of our college and our region. We tell stories, and in doing so, we connect the past to the present. Several years ago, I was asked by Lansing Community College to put something together for a walking tour of the campus. And being a person that likes walking, and also somebody who at that point had taught history with a pretty good local focus uh, when and where possible for a number of years at the college, I got really excited at this. I thought, wow, this would be a great opportunity to throw a little bit of history into a tour of the beautiful campus of Lansing Community College in downtown Lansing. And so about the same time, I happened to come upon an archive of what turned out to be about 9,000 photographs that had been scanned in to the college by our marketing department. Um, at that time, a few years prior to my endeavor to embark upon an uh, information piece for a more formal tour of the college campus. And one of the things I discovered in looking through those archive photos was not only how the college campus had grown through the years and its location in downtown Lansing, but also there's a real sense that came through in looking at those photos that the growth of Lansing Community College's campus, which has really been from basically about 1960, mid-1960s on, was part and parcel to a lot of the overall changes that were happening in downtown Lansing at the time. And those changes, in turn, were part of broader trends across the state, across the nation. So in this episode of Land Stories, we're going to look at the history of Lansing Community College, the physical presence of it, right in downtown Lansing. And in doing so, let's look at a couple of the interesting points that come into mind when it comes to where Lansing Community College's campus development fit into some broader trends of the time. And the, the two trends I'm referring to specifically, one of them is a local trend, and that is the change in downtown Lansing during the, we'll call it the third decade 
of the post-war era. So that would be from the mid-1960s on. And then second of all, that's tied into urban renewal. Urban renewal being the uh, more than just the buzzword, but it, it tied into a lot of federal programs and state programs in the United States, beginning really in the late 1950s, that Lansing Community College would ultimately be substantially impacted by. The history of the college starts really in 1957. Lansing Community College was started as a vocational technical school, which a lot of the community colleges, not only in Michigan, but across the United States were. And its founding goes back to April of 1957, and part of it is the endeavor of the recently uh, deceased Philip Gannon. Dr. Philip Gannon is the founding president of Lansing Community College, and the work that he put into the founding of that college really started while he was a graduate student at nearby Michigan State University. And and Dr. Gannon had an absolute uh, fascinating life and left his impact on uh, really the mid-Michigan community and I would argue the state as a whole on countless numbers of lives, actually, in terms of all those folks that were fortunate enough to attend Lansing Community College and and earn certificates and degrees and accomplish transfer programs while they were there that, you know, few people actually have, I think, in the grand scheme of things uh, in life. And, and that's really one of the things that makes the, the founding of a college, this is what Dr. Gannon was part of, uh, is something that's so remarkable. But 1957 is the year that Lansing Community College started a presence in downtown Lansing because, as we will see, Lansing Community College has been in downtown Lansing uh, in one form or another, and it's been a pretty big form since the college was founded. So 1957, where did Lansing Community College exist in 1957 in its founding? And, well, the answer to that question takes us to Capitol Avenue. So imagine for a moment you're standing with me on Capitol Avenue in 1957, and the part of Capitol Avenue you're standing on is the 500 block. And you're staring at this uh, red-colored building, red brick building, that has floor-to-ceiling windows and occupies the better part of an entire city block. And that block is bound by going clockwise, Shiawassee Street to the south, Seymour Street to the west, Genesee Street to the north, and Capitol Avenue to the east, which is where we're standing in our imaginary look at downtown Lansing in 1957. And the building we're staring at was the first building uh, built by the Lansing Public Schools for use as a high school. And it was built way back in the 1870s. And in fact, That building itself came to be known as Old Central. It, by itself, will be a focus of a subsequent episode of Land Stories. So keep on tuning in to when our program is broadcast and when it's archived in uh, podcast format. And you will uh, definitely be interested when we get that show up and running here in a little while. But for now, we're going to look at 1957. And the building that we are staring at right now, even though it was built in the 1870s, By the time 1957 rolls around, it really looks nothing like it did at the time. And for those of you who are wondering right now, well, I think he might be talking about the same building I remember as Old Central. Well, indeed, you're correct. I am. And for those of you who have been around Lansing for a while, uh, you know Old Central well. It was the building that Lansing Community College started in, and indeed, it's because that was an educational institution in its very physical form, the building itself, that big red brick building that stood there that was around at the time that Lansing Community College was able to use it to hold its first classes, and it had an administrative presence in there as well. Now, that building, again, it looked a lot different than it did when it was built in the uh, 1870s, and by the time Lansing Community College got a hold of it, the main differences were mostly a result of a, of a substantial remodel and expansion of that building that the Lansing Public Schools had done way back in the beginning part of the 20th century. Lansing Community College did some more remodeling of that building. And that building, 
uh, and the college's acquisition of it outright in the 1960s is very much the foundation by which Lansing Community College would come to expand throughout the downtown Lansing area. Now, let's look across the street then from that Capitol Avenue building. And again, we'll step back in time in our imaginary time machine and we will focus on 1957 as we're looking to the other side of Capitol Avenue, that would be the east side, we see some old houses that line the street, a couple of which are still on Lansing Community College's campus, one of which is the Rogers Carrier House, the other which is the John Herman House. The Rogers Carrier House is a red brick building with uh, sort of the color of tarnished copper, uh, wood ornamentation on the uh, front and side gables as well as some of the window trim of the building and it is a Darius Moon architectural gem in downtown Lansing. Darius Moon was a very well-known architect in the Lansing area. He designed a number of historic properties in the area. Probably the most famous house that he designed unfortunately doesn't stand anymore. That was the mansion that Ransom Eli Olds had built for his family in the heyday of his uh, pioneering automobile industry contribution that he made through the founding of the Olds Motor Vehicle Works, which really became Oldsmobile. And then the longest legacy he had in Lansing would be in the form of the real motor car company, which existed in one form or another till the 1970s. And now the building that we call the Bolgi Tower in downtown Lansing. Well, that was a Ransom E. Olds financed construction uh, back in the late 1920s, early 1930s. But the building we're looking at right now, designed by Darius Moon, for H.M. Rogers, who was a local realtor. He uh, had that house constructed in 1891, and it was used uh, by the college after it acquired it in 1967, furiously as a bookstore, as a location of the college foundation office, and also as uh, the location of offices for faculty and staff in the college campus. That house that's still on Lansing Community College's campus, as well as the house next door to it, the John T. Herman House, these are going to be the focal point for the remaining part of our radio walking tour of the campus. So we're going to walk a little bit further south, right next door actually, to the John T. Herman House. We go and it is right next door to the Rogers Carrier House. The Herman House was built just a couple years after the Rogers Carrier House, built in 1893, and John T. Herman, of whom the house takes its name from, was a local tailor. He ended up having a, a very prominent role in the Lansing business community at the time, is well known, and the construction of his house tells us that he did quite well with his business endeavors. That house was acquired by the college about the same time that the Rogers Carrier House was acquired, both in 1967, and just as the case with the Rogers Carrier House in the 1980s, Lansing Community College students, as well as local contractors, worked on restoring the house. It was designated as a historical site in 1987, and then the house more recently has had some necessary renovations done to it as well to keep it standing, and it currently stands as the house that the Lansing Community College president lives in. And I like to think of that house as sort of the kind overlooking property of the area, and perhaps it sounds a little bit odd to affix a emotional quality such as kind to a house, but it just has a stately look to it. It faces Capitol Avenue, and behind it, sits the Shigematsu Memorial Gardens, as well as the rest of Lansing Community College's campus, and it therefore serves as a, a nice gateway into the beautiful college campus. So, carrying on with our radio walking tour, we are going to walk onto the property of the John T. Herman House. We're going to walk around the south side of it, and we're going to enter into the property through the beautiful Shigematsu Memorial Garden. That memorial garden was built in the first decade of the 
current century, and it is named in honor of some uh, folks that were involved in a program that Lansing Community College once had with a business and educational institution in Shiga Prefecture in Japan. Shiga is the sister state, if you will. They're called prefectures in Japan. We're roughly the same equivalent as a state in the United States to the state of Michigan. It's a beautiful garden, and if you're ever on Lansing Community College's campus, I strongly encourage you to take a stroll through it, especially in the summertime when the koi are swimming around in the pond, when there's a nice little gentle breeze blowing through the garden, and it is a very pleasant place to spend a few moments contemplating the, uh, the connection of the natural world with humanity's never-ending attempt to, in some way or another, influence it. From that point on, we are going to walk a little bit to the east, not much, just a couple hundred feet, and we're going to encounter the first major construction project that Lansing Community College endeavored to embark upon on the college's campus, and that would be the Arts and Sciences Building, which was built in the 1960s. This is really where the overall picture of Lansing Community College's campus takes place in terms of taking the shape that it would now and being impacted by those two broader state and national trends that I mentioned towards the beginning of our episode here. One would be the changes in the development of downtown Lansing throughout the 1960s and beyond, what I think we can definitely consider to be part of a national trend, which is urban renewal. And in fact, it's the construction of the Arts and Sciences Building, the time frame that it happens in, why it was put where it was, and why it ended up looking like it did, actually, that in many ways tells the story of Lansing Community College's role in Lansing and in Michigan in the 1960s. And we're going to have to take our story back a little bit to Dr. Philip Gannon, as I mentioned a few moments ago in our episode here. Gannon was the president of Lansing Community College at the time the Arts and Sciences Building was constructed in the late 1960s. And just a couple years before the construction of the Lansing Community College Arts and Sciences Building uh, was nearing completion, the state of Michigan passed one of the most important pieces of legislation that it had ever passed. And that would be the Community College Act of 1966, Act 331 of 1966. This is a very important act because what it did is it enabled community colleges to organize themselves into districts that were funded by a combination of property tax millage, just like a public school district is, as well as tuition and other state and federal monies, just like a university is, and as the funding sources for a community college was, was and still is, a blended model between how a public K-12 school district is financed and how a university is financed, so was the case with the blended model of governance that the Community College Act of 1966 authorized. So community colleges in Michigan are very much governed and funded as a blend of the model that the K-12 districts in the state use, as well as the model by which universities use. And that makes our community colleges here in Michigan a really unique asset that we have. They are community assets, and they are funded by the community that they exist in and the community writ large when you look at the availability of students to attend those colleges and pay tuition, as well as the state and federal funding that they receive. But the reason why I'm mentioning this act right now is because when the Community College Act of 1966 was passed, it caused the community colleges that were already in existence at the time, such as Lansing Community College, to reorganize their governance structure along the same lines that this act enabled them to do so. And that meant the 
election of new boards of trustees and the uh, administration of the funds through these various funding sources. So out of that, the Lansing Community College Board of Trustees is looking at its enrollment in the 1960s, and it decides that it's time to build a new uh, instructional building on the campus. And that building ultimately took form as the Arts and Sciences Building, and construction of that building was nearly complete by the time we get to 1968. But the context by which that building eventually takes its shape in is the really crucial part to the story in many ways. And as I mentioned again towards the beginning of the episode, the construction of the Arts and Sciences Building is a good thing to focus on because in many ways the building itself is kind of a microcosm of what was going on at the time. Downtown Lansing, by the time we get into the 1960s, was undergoing some of the same challenges to other downtowns throughout the United States, not only in cities the size of Lansing, but cities that were also smaller and those that were much larger. In the 1960s, to make probably the most important point in somewhat of an overly simplistic summary, um, it was the time of suburbanization. I should say the expansion of the time of suburbanization, which has actually started, um, well, even before the Second World War, but really we did, we generally associate with that starting in the 1950s and then continuing right on through the 1960s and beyond. So 1966, when the Community College Act is passed in Michigan, we're very much at the height of this trend towards suburbanization. And if you look at where most community colleges ended up building at this time, they built out in the suburbs. And Lansing Community College, had history worked out a little bit differently, might have ended up that way. But the college leadership at the time ended up doing something that was really quite remarkable. When the college realized that their enrollment figures and the projected enrollment figures for the coming years and perhaps even the coming decades was going to necessitate that the college put together a strategic master plan of what its future would look like, including its physical plant. In other words, the buildings, the other physical assets that make up the college campus was to be located. The college decided to send a survey out to the residents of what would become the community college district. And in that survey, they asked residents of the Lansing area, the mid-Michigan area, to choose from a series of proposed or possible locations that the college would be able to build a campus at. One of the options in that survey was downtown Lansing. The college at the time was operating in some buildings that already existed in the area that is the college campus now, but had reached the point where it needed to really build a campus of its own rather than acquiring uh, buildings that were already there that weren't necessarily purpose-built for what the college was going to use them for. So the survey went out to residents of the area, and the most uh, common selection that the people who took the survey made out of all the options that were given to them was to keep the college in operation where it already was in the buildings, and that is in downtown Lansing. So at the time when you had community colleges being built or expanding out in the suburbs, I think of places like Oakland Community College, Macomb Community College, Kalamazoo Valley Community College, uh, just to name a, a few of more that I could offer, Lansing Community College ended up expanding its footprint right in downtown Lansing. And it's the process of that expansion that brings Lansing Community College and its physical presence into line with a couple other trends that were going on at the state and national level at the time. 
at the state level or the local level, downtowns were undergoing a dramatic change during this time period. Prior to the Second World War, for example, most of the retail districts in communities were in the main streets or street corridor in the downtown area. And so Lansing, for example, had its main shopping district or retail district that went up and down Washington Avenue, Washington Square as it's called in places, right in downtown Lansing. And what happens is, is after the Second World War, the United States falls deeply, madly, probably permanently in love with this thing called the automobile. Of course, the automobile had been around for quite some time by then. The first automobiles were experiments by uh, European inventors in the latter part of the 1800s, and then American inventors about the same time, a little bit thereafter. And by the time we get into the 19-teens and the 1920s, we have giant industrial corporations like Ford Motor Company, General Motors, to name but a few, that have built the automobile into a really, really important consumer product. After the Second World War, prosperity was the name of the game in the United States. It was not a prosperity that everybody shared in, economically speaking, but nonetheless, enough people did that the consumer purchase of the automobile proliferated. And cars need roads to drive on. And when people have automobiles that they want to use for doing things like shopping, there has to be roads that go to those stores, and there has to be places to park those cars. So in Lansing, during this time period, the 1950s and into the 1960s, the retail corridor that had been Washington Avenue or Washington Square in downtown Lansing for a long period of time starts to be abandoned for the suburbs or places that aren't quite out in the suburbs but are getting kind of close. In Lansing, the Frandor Shopping Center is built in the late 1950s, uh, named after one of the main major post-World War II property developers in the area, a gentleman by the name of Francis Core, And the Francis Core uh, company is who developed Frandor, and it's called Frandor because Francis Core and Doris Core, Francis's wife, is who that shopping center is named after. And this isn't a history of Frandor, but the reason why I mention this is because the draining of the retail corridor in downtown Lansing had a profoundly transformative effect on the city. And it is out of this that downtown Lansing is faced with something of a real uh, turning point in contemplating what it's going to look like in the next 10, 20, 30, or 40 years. Communities across the state and across the nation face the same uh, contemplative moment. And this is partially where urban renewal comes into the picture here. Urban renewal is a terminology that is used to describe a variety of projects that were done in the post-World War II era with the uh, expressed intent of renewing or in some way redeveloping urban environments that had fallen on hard times or were deemed to be under some sort of distress due to changing economic conditions, such as, for example, the draining of retail corridors, away from central city districts such as Washington Square and downtown Lansing and out into more suburban outlying areas. So it is out of this broader picture then that the residents of the Lansing Community College District selected downtown Lansing to be the place by which Lansing Community College would expand. And the first major project to be part of that expansion is indeed the Arts and Sciences Building, which was built in the late 1960s. And as I'm recording this episode, I am staring at what is an absolutely fascinating picture, and I shall do my best to describe to you what it looks like. I'm looking at a picture of the Arts and Sciences Building under construction in 
1968. It is a lovely color photograph that captures uh, the life in a day, if you will, a moment in time in a way that, that good photography, be it be good because of the technique at which the photographer utilized, or good because of the subject matter that it covers, or both, is something that oftentimes does this. And in the lower left-hand corner of this lovely photograph, there is a sign. The sign is indicating the construction project, what financed it, and what was going on. And it is a, a moment in time that is captured that shows, well, it shows funding that is being used to pay for the building. It shows local contractors that were hired to construct the building. And it also shows vehicular traffic able to move through what is now the pedestrian mall in downtown Lansing. And the Arts and Sciences building abutted Washington Square, Washington Avenue. Now, it's hard to imagine walking through the campus of downtown Lansing, which is very much pedestrian-friendly and not intended for the automobile to go through. In fact, one cannot drive a car legally uh, unless it's for purposes of construction or, say, the police officers that drive their cars around it, the Washington Mall through Lansing Community College's campus. That was closed to pedestrians in the mid-1970s when another major development in Lansing Community College's campus came about. Back to our photo. The Arts and Sciences building is nearly complete in this photo in 1968. The construction sheds that were built over the sidewalks, both on the Shiawassee Street side, that would be the south elevation of the building, and the Washington Square side, that would be the east elevation of the building, are still there in this photo. But the concrete and brick facade that is nearly unchanged now in the year 2022 from what it was back then has completely taken form. The building's windows have been installed, its roof is in place, and it is nearly ready to embark upon its position as the anchor of 1960s and into the future redevelopment of downtown Lansing and the outward forward-thinking progress that that building came to symbolize as part of Lansing Community College's growth and development into the future. That will end this episode of Land Stories. Next episode, we are going to look at the construction of Lansing Community College into the 1970s and how that would continue to play a major role not only in the redevelopment of downtown Lansing, but also in the lives of the tens of thousands of students who would attend Lansing Community College. For now, next time you're walking through downtown Lansing, take a stroll on the Lansing Community College's campus. Notice the, by now, 140 years of history that the buildings in that campus encompass. Stand on the corner of Shiawassee Street and Washington Square. Look up at the Arts and Sciences Building and imagine what the future in 1968 looked like. Not only for those who were working on the finishing touches of the construction project, but also for the students. The students at Lansing Community College in an endeavor to make their future a better place and what that building says about what that future ended up being. You've been listening to Land Stories with me, David Seawick. For more information on this program and to stream past episodes, visit lccconnect.org. LCC Connect is the official home of the voices, vibes, and vision of Lansing Community College, offering hours of original and exciting programming. Hosted by faculty, staff, and community members, 
LCC Connect explores our college's work in the community, important topics in higher education, and our vision for the future. Catch the Vibe on 89.7 FM or online at lccconnect.org. Until next time, remember, keep telling good stories.